Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The potential for the fragmentation of the internet infrastructure is a concern to many. There are the technical aspects of connectivity, and then there are the ability to disconnect citizens from entire countries from the global internet. There's also the content question. What is permissible? What content is considered a no-go in some countries? For instance, China, Russia, and other authoritarian-leaning regimes push their own decentralized versions of the internet. Internet governance bodies are being challenged on how to maintain the status quo for the best practices that maintain a free and open internet. Will the internet fragment further? And if so, how will users experience online change across the globe? And what would a more fragmented internet mean to global security? Today's guest is Nick Merrill. Nick directs the Daylight Security Research Lab at the UC Berkeley Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Nick joins the podcast to discuss how his work at UC Berkeley measures the way countries treat the internet differently in terms of traffic and actual connections, and what's being considered censored or not permitted when it comes to content. Nick also discusses the internet fragmentation issue in the context of cybersecurity, which is highly relevant due to the recent cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure. Nick, welcome to today's podcast. You are currently at the UC Berkeley Daylight Lab. Can you tell me about the focus of the work you're doing at the lab? Sure. So, you know, I think in general, a lot of work in security starts by trying to make people more secure, which of course is something that needs to be done. Our work is similar, but slightly different. We're trying to figure out what security means to different people in the first place. We're trying to help people figure out what security risks matter to them and what steps they can take to achieve you know, whatever value of security they're trying to achieve. So it's a less kind of top-down vision of security. It's a more bottom-up vision of security. And we focus more on kind of tools, practices, and you know, as we're going to probably talk more about here, metrics to help people understand what's going on. That's a really helpful overview. I feel like we're about ready to get into another one of those long, drawn-out conversations in Washington about you know, where to put the security in the tool set. And I say, put it everywhere. <laughs> I'd love your thoughts on that. But another area that you are also focused in, which I like that this overlays because a lot of times they're two separate conversations, is looking at what's going on with internet fragmentation. I've always had a concern on it from many levels, and the internet is definitely moving east, I think. You know, we felt very much like the Western hemisphere has been the, the core of you know, where this all got started. And so we have democracy baked in. And now we're finding that's not so much the case as we may have thought. So there are a lot of technical aspects of the connectivity or perhaps the lack of connectivity in some of these countries on when it comes to you know, content and those elements that they can control what are permissible and also filtering. And there are some countries that have full no-go topics. And I would, I would put child exploitation is definitely one that everybody struggles with because I think we all want to eradicate it, but we know it exists. So in some countries, they're looking for permission to take more things off the internet than just the one thing that I think everybody is concerned about. But you work on the Internet Fragmentation Index, which I found fascinating. It's a really interesting tool to measure how countries are treating the internet differently on both fronts, actual connections, and what is being censored or not permitted. So kind of walk us through that. And we will put in the show notes where to find that because it's a really elegant tool set. Sure. You know, I think our philosophy here is that the internet is composed of a variety of different technologies. And when we talk about the internet, what we're really talking about is kind of the amalgamation of a bunch of technologies historically that have been layered on top of one another to produce this kind of effect of 
what appears to be a global internet. And I would say the rhetoric about the internet historically, up until probably very, very recently, is that it is a truly global network. And the question we began to ask is, how is this purportedly global network different in different countries and different places? And we measure basically proxies of different layers of the internet, different layers, different technologies in this internet stack in different countries to see how the internet is kind of materially different in different places. So Freedom House has this great tool set for looking at what they call internet freedom. We're doing something much different from that. We're not concerned with kind of normative values of freedom. We're concerned only with kind of descriptive values, technologies, how these technologies link networks together and how they vary. So our goal here is to see who is similar to whom and who's different from whom. And what we end up with at the end of the day are basically clusters of internets that are similar, interoperable with one another, and where they're situated, who they're similar to. And we end up kind of with this map of similarities between national internets. And what's interesting about this is that it turns out that this map, these similarities, correlate with trade, military alliances, for example. If you block similar websites to someone, you are more likely to also have a trade agreement with them. You're more likely to be in a military alliance with that country. So what we find is that these patterns that we measure on the internet, these patterns we measure about the internet, kind of reflect and probably also shape other kinds of facets of geopolitical relations. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, and I hope people that learn this go look at your maps. Right before the museum closed, they actually had the Freedom House. They did a big visual on where, according to Freedom House, the media was free or not free. So it was a really clear, I would say red, yellow, green, but there wasn't much. Well, there was some yellow there, right? You know, and I think that you get to that a little bit on your maps as well as you. And when I was looking at them, I was wondering what countries sort of emulate each other. And part of this since I've been in the internet space for a long time, as I realized sometimes you just have the thing where you have two ministers of communication that talk to each other and like, well, how are you handling that? And then they just go mimic whatever the software they're using or the, the tool sets or you know how they're managing it. Not usually overly sophisticated by a legal perspective. It's just more like two guys who think they have the same problem are trying to solve for it. And then there are others as we're definitely seeing right now with a lot of activity in China and Russia and what we're starting to see get closed off, or maybe it's always been closed off, we're just more aware of that. And I think some of the these layering maps that you show are really interesting. And I love that you bring up the point about trade, is that there's you know this overlay that this isn't just technical people trying to figure stuff out. You have all these geopolitical elements that are going on there as well. So I, I highly recommend people go take a look at these because they're, they're really interesting. Going to part of that stack, which is a Western issue. I, I mean, I, I think of it because I know it's been a real problem for us recently. And, and you wrote a piece in, I believe, The Hill on it. You commented on the content delivery networks like Akamai and Fastly and the challenges that they create in cybersecurity. They're private network infrastructure companies that deliver website content for many major companies. This happened with Twitter a couple of years ago in, in one of the hacks. So how do we incorporate security into net, the network ecosystem where there's not a central control mechanism for the ecosystem. And I'm wondering, is this contractual security or is there you know, best practices that they work on or are they just edge providers and we have to say they get to do what they want to do because they're private and the part of the public-private partnership of internet you know, usage? What are your thoughts on that? Right. So I think, first of all, you know, kind of for the benefit of the listeners, content delivery networks or CDNs 
they serve two really important purposes. The first, ironically enough, is security. They get incoming traffic and they determine whether or not that traffic is legitimate. And the second is efficiency. They put content close to the people who are requesting it, which is great you know, for speed, reliability of the network. There's even kind of a, an environmental case to be made for, for that. And so you know, I think a lot of people probably naively think when they go to a website, you know, let's say New York Times, they are requesting content directly from New York Times servers. And in general, that is really not the case. You're really going to a CDN like Cloudflare, looks at your traffic, says, okay, you know, this doesn't look suspicious. Here's some content that I have cached or made a copy of for you that's close to you. And so these content delivery networks, in my opinion, they serve a really important function. They are integral to the internet, and, and I'm not anti-CDN in any way. The problem with CDNs is that there are very few of them. They're run by you know, a handful of, of private companies. And the issue is that if they were to go down, we would have really widespread outages. And now, of course, these companies are relatively good at security. We do see sometimes localized issues that have surprising big effects, like Fastly outage we saw last month. And before that, AWS had, a, had an outage of their own. But I think that the big systemic risk here is kind of a really big state-sponsored attack. Imagining, for example, Russia doing a highly sophisticated Stuxnet-level attack on a provider like Cloudflare. You know, This could take down, really, arguably, the global internet through these kinds of cascading failures that, that CDN outages sometimes cause. So the problem, in some sense, is the centralization of CDNs. The question, what do we do about it? There, everything that you list, Shane, makes some degree of sense. The only thing I would add to it is that you know the internet, kind of one of the original designs, was to avoid centralization. The idea is things go down, things happen. As long as there's enough redundancy, you can always route around a failure. And historically, that has been very, very true. CDNs are kind of the first thing that has challenged that in the sense that they are so centralized that if there were an outage, it would really be impossible to route around. And it would also cause failures to cascade downstream, even people who don't directly use the provider. So what do we do about that? You know, I think that there's a lot of interest in kind of re-decentralizing this infrastructure. And this is one of those things where a blockchain-like technology, not literally Bitcoin, but you know, a decentralized consensus mechanism might actually help for things like caching. You can provide a kind of decentralized caching service. There may even be ways to provide a decentralized kind of EDOS or distributed denial of service protection on the security side. To my mind, this is a really interesting area for research. I think that whatever we can do to provide fallbacks or, or failures would be a helpful complement to any kind of policy intervention. And then as far as you know, these, these policy interventions, I mean, listen, yeah, I, I don't know for sure, but it certainly should be the case, I think, that a company like Cloudflare should report to CISA, for example. This is absolutely critical infrastructure. And, and the portrait I always like to paint here about content delivery networks is, you know, imagine you wake up one morning and you go to get a coffee and your credit card doesn't work. And actually no one's credit card is working. And you try to go to a news site to figure out why no one's credit card is working and you can't access the news either, right? This is like a really, really scary situation. And I think that that would result in probably panic buying. People are draining ATMs, if the, assuming the ATMs even work. 
it's a really dangerous situation if we were to have this kind of pan-internet meltdown. And we really, you know, when we talk about critical infrastructure like this, it's really not a technical issue. The concerns are very much social, and they're, you know, obviously connected to larger geopolitical concerns about adversaries, you know, doing things that are, are nefarious and taking advantage of some of these weak points in the network. So, so that really is what drives my concern, briefly. The cynical side of me wants to say, when the internet goes down, there's still books and cash. But <laughs> I realize what you're saying is much more serious than that. There are days like when my my ISP might stop running for moments because I live in a condominium. So we have a lot of people on the, the same system. And I, I want to go, well, I guess I'm going to go grab a magazine for a minute. you know. But there, when you're talking about the, the bigger you know, elements of this and the ability for there to be that network effect in a negative way, it, it is very frightening. But it, there's also an issue I think that we deal with a lot in the policy realm that you mentioned at the very beginning of that, that question about CDNs, that people don't understand the prefetching and the, the layering that goes on on websites and also on mobile. But I am from Midwest, and sometimes I'll go back and read my hometown paper. And the, it takes forever to load. I mean, and, and I, and I because I do this, know that it's not actually, you know, a lot of people just think, oh, my internet's so slow. I need this really fast internet. And you're like, no, I just need these guys to have a better idea of how to structure a website. Right. And, and, you know, your hometown paper, they're probably not using a CDN and you can really feel that. That's why I I take such great pain to say, I am not against CDNs. These are critical, critical infrastructure for the internet. And really the internet's original design where you would, you know, run a server, anyone in the world would be able to access it. Conceptually, it's very beautiful, but it just didn't scale to the modern internet. We can't expect people to access point A to point B anywhere in the internet and have that be performant enough to be satisfying for a modern web experience. We need things like caching. And on top of that, again, this A to B access from anything from anywhere, it leaves people open to distributed denial of service attacks. And there was a time during kind of these anonymous hacktivist protests around 2008 financial crisis, where really smart people thought that DDoS attacks were going to be potentially an existential threat to the internet. And providers like Cloudflare, through kind of the collective defense, have really, to a degree, neutralized DDoS threats for, for their users. So, so these are really, really critical infrastructure. The problem at the same time is that you know, Cloudflare also blocks pretty much all traffic from Tor, the Tor Anonymous browser. And the Tor Anonymous browser is a really interesting project. It's called the Onion. It stands for the Onion Browser, and it comes with this browser bundle it's called the Tor Browser Bundle. And it was developed in part with funding from the DOD. The idea, of course, is that it would help people in countries with censored internets circumvent censorship. And what's happened is that instead, it was used often by criminals to do whatever they want to do, run the Silk Road, buy drugs, and also by kind of hacktivists who want to do DOS attacks. So it's easier for someone like Cloudflare to block all that traffic. And the result now is that the Onion Router, I saw a tweet recently that that Tor is just good enough to you know, help criminals do what they need to do. But because of the situation, it, it's totally useless for people trying to circumvent censorship. So, so it's kind of, you know, we're in an awkward position. And, and we're in an awkward position in part because these, these centralized defense mechanisms, while very effective, you know, don't necessarily incorporate every stakeholder's goal or desire. And I think, obviously, we, when you think about a private company, it makes sense for them to block tour traffic. That's what the, the consumer wants. When you zoom out at a more kind of policy or global level, what do we really want to achieve? You know, some of these things start to break down. And so again, the question becomes, how do we decide collectively or what is the right way to decide 
how to provision some of these services in a way that's both robust. It's not going to cause a huge internet pan internet outage. And also, you know, that helps us achieve these broader, broader goals. So I'm going to layer some policy into that description of the technical challenges there. You've written that global internet architecture is based on Western concept of freedom and really could easily become censored. So for a long time, we have managed international policy through the Westphalian Treaty that was designed to give independence and autonomy to individual countries. And now we're seeing, particularly in Asia, some countries that are controlling their internet from inside their borders. And many of the people that believe that the internet is built with you know, freedom, that democracy in the base, don't like that they can throttle what their citizens can see. But is it our place to tell these governments that they need to have a more open communication with the world and with their own citizens? Right. You know, so listen, this is one of my favorite things to think about. And I think kind of as key background, again, for the listeners, the, the internet is material. This is not some kind of, you know, people think about the digital realm. The internet is absolutely made of physical matter. There are cables that run under the ocean. There are, you know, things that travel through the air. There are physical machines in different places. A popular idea that in my mind is really, was really pioneered by China is this idea that, you know, the stuff is material. It goes through our borders. We have sovereignty over it. It's you know within our right to to do whatever we want with this content. And as you said, Shane, you know this is antithetical to kind of the people who who built the internet, who were funded by ARPA, which was kind of a U.S. military project, and it was a strongly ideological project. And there's a great book, Prehistory of the Cloud. I recommend to anyone kind of about that those ideological underpinnings. And you know this question of okay, well, well, what now? You know, I think that the question is, what do we want the world to be like, and who has the power to make it that way? And when I look at the internet, this is an internet that's very much run by the United States. That is facing, you know, I think that the U.S.'s hegemony over the internet is facing really serious challenges from all sides, from domestic tech companies all the way up, obviously, to you know, national adversaries. For now, <laughs> the U.S. still has quite a lot of power. So we're at this critical juncture where I think that with concerted policy and you know, private-public collaboration, it is possible to change the direction of the internet really broadly. And how do we do that is really the question. So where my work fits in is we, we try to make these metrics that describe how the internet is working. And if you do something, if you try something, you want to know if your intervention had an effect. Is the internet going in the right direction or the wrong direction? And that's really what we aspire to do. I am not sitting here with all of the answers to these questions. But you know, what I know for sure is that if we want to do anything, we have to see to what degree our interventions are having the effect we want them to have. And that's really where measurement and metrics play a role. And when I think about you know, our work in relation to work other people have done, it's really kind of broad across the technologies that we look at. We look at every layer of the internet stack, the TCP IP stack, and beyond. And it's also really not normative. We're not making a strong assumption about what makes for a good or stable internet. We have some, obviously some hypotheses, but really we're measuring what we believe to be the critical kind of points of fragility, things that could make the internet really break apart or fragment, parts where you know, there's, there's real structural or systemic weakness, and describe, you know, is this point getting stronger or weaker? Is this actor getting more or less strength? And, you know, when you think about kind of this Westphalian concept of states, that's very much the model that China has when they think about internet sovereignty. In practice, internet sovereignty has always been tricky because 
everything online is so interconnected, so mutually dependent for the same reason that CDNs cause cascading failures when they go down. We really are in kind of, in many ways, living the future that the original architects of the internet wanted, which was a truly kind of globally interdependent future. It's really kind of a classical liberalism in, in that way, in the way that it's imagined. And to a degree, it still works, you know, much to the chagrin of a country like Russia, who has tried to, you know, disconnect themselves from the global internet. And it's only ever a partial solution, right? So I think that the kind of this transhistorical question that, that I'm wondering about is kind of what role do traditional states have in the governance of the internet? And there's this kind of really exciting idea to me that Milton Muller at Georgia Tech has about kind of popular sovereignty of the internet and to what degree the internet itself can be this kind of sovereign entity. You know, I think that this has a lot to go as far as research fleshing out what that would actually look like. But to my mind, it's, it's, it's a really interesting idea that draws on a lot of the classic kind of philosophy about the internet and responds kind of, you know, has the capacity at least to rise to the challenge of a lot of this kind of internet sovereignty stuff that does, you know, in, in many real ways threaten to make the internet not at all a global infrastructure. I love Milton. I've worked with him for many years, but I worry that he doesn't think that national security is actually a thing, but we'll, we'll not go on that today. <laughs> there was an article written by Bill Davidow in The Atlantic on the tragedy of the internet commons, where he is a big proponent for the needs to regulate. And I'll say I'm, I, I do not have a foot firmly in that camp, but I do see the challenges on what the relationship is between government and third parties, especially you know when it comes to exchanges at all different levels, both the technical the content and you know what governments should and should not have the ability to either take down or put up on internet access. But the question that has come up this year, which is a tough one because it's somewhere in the middle, I think, is disinformation and how often it's classified as a cyber adjacent risk. But I, and this is part of why I made the comment, though I do love Milton, is that I do think that the disinformation campaigns were not just fun. They had a goal in mind, which was a major disruption of our government and how things run. And we saw how far that was able to get out of hand. And now we're watching how Facebook's having to manage kind of the other side of that equation, which is how much of this are they responsible for with their consumers who use their product? And when is it that they have to bow down to you know the government will? So kind of a couple of different questions in that. But the key thing is like on disinformation, do you think that's something that we can make less of in the internet? Yeah, these are all great questions. I think First of all, to my mind, disinformation is absolutely a core cybersecurity issue. And the way I think about it, I would say around 2015, 2016, you know, Russia approaching the US, we are overall very technically sophisticated. Our kind of core traditional, let's say, kind of cybersecurity defenses are overall very good. And the government has this kind of hands-off attitude toward content online. So disinformation was very much the path of least resistance as far as, you know, really striking the U.S. in the digital domain. So this is a core cybersecurity issue and absolutely, you know, a frontier in internet governance. And I think we see, you know, nations really worldwide deciding what they are going to do about disinformation. And I've seen a lot of different models. I remember one in Taiwan that was really interesting to me where there's kind of this minister that can push out these basically push notifications that correct misinformation. And again, I am not sitting here with answers to these questions. It is obvious that regardless of what I say, this is an internet governance issue, whether in the US or abroad or both, 
people in government are going to be taking an active approach to handling misinformation because it is a core national security issue. The question is, as countries try different strategies to combat misinformation, as private actors like Facebook try different strategies to combat misinformation, what is the effect on the global internet? Are those interventions making the global internet more robust? Are they making the internet more fragile in certain ways? Are they fragmenting the internet? Are they making the internet more global? This is really where we need a guide. We need metrics that tell us what is happening when these different government strategies are being deployed, because people are going to try stuff. And, and that is what it is. And no one has a good answer. It will take some experimentation. I'm sure that these strategies are going to be somewhat contextual. You know, A strategy in the US is going to look different from a strategy in Taiwan. We have different legal traditions and we're dealing with different types of threats. So the question is really, you know, what are the trade-offs? And if we're saying, hey, you know, India is doing this thing to control, let's say, COVID vaccine misinformation, and it's, you know, promises maybe the strategy can save this number of lives, but the risk is, you know, this kind of fragility to the internet. Do we have enough kind of quantitative information to make a well-informed risk-reward trade-off with these different strategies? And we aim, we aspire to give that kind of risk management calculus a little bit more specificity as we deal with these different strategies and as these different new strategies come online. Because what we've seen now with handling misinformation, this is, this is not the end of the story. We're going to see a lot more of this for probably a really long time. And people are going to be trying things a lot. And we just need to know what the trade-offs are. That's a very good point. I feel like the consequences for criminals and the ability for every for a lot of us to just continue to love the internet as it is are at odds some days. And I think there will be part two of this conversation because there's so much that we could continue to tackle. But for right now, give us an idea what the future developments are in the lab and what we should be looking for on the horizon for you. Right. So number one, we're working on this project that we've called the Internet Atlas. This is basically an open source observatory of structural threats to the internet. So I would say, you know, keep your eyes peeled for this. We're going to have a lot more on this soon. The idea is, is, is really kind of to bring all the things we've kind of talked about together, plus some other stuff, to give people an idea of, of where the internet really is weak and needs shoring up and, and what we might be able to do about that. And then the second thing is, you know, right now, we really actually don't know what makes the internet stable. The traditional wisdom on this is that a stable internet is one that's broadly decentralized and that has kind of this multi-stakeholder governance model. And this received wisdom is at odds with our observation that the US just dominates the internet. So how do you reconcile you know, this perceived kind of stability from decentralization with this observed kind of hegemonic control over the internet? I have kind of a provocative answer here, which is that you know, perhaps like in trade, sometimes a hegemony can actually make this distributed kind of global good system more stable. I don't know if that's true or false, but I haven't, you know, kind of heard anyone else say it. It's your theory, All right? Okay. It's a, it's a, it's one theory, and you know, I only kind of raise this heterodox explanation to drive home the point that we really don't have good theories about what makes for a stable internet. We're really far from, you know, I think people kind of laugh at economics because they always flip flop on these, but at least they that economics has, you know, competing theories with models that can, you know, describe you know, what makes an internet stable, what makes these kinds of mediums of exchange stable or unstable. And we really want to get there with the internet. It's really important that we have these kinds of, of models and coherent theories that tell us what is going to produce stability globally 
and what kind of changes we may need to make to make the internet more stable. I think what I worry about the most, what really keeps me up at night is that we're sleepwalking into kind of an internet collapse scenario in which there are these weak points that are getting worse and worse and worse. And at some point they're going to be hit and it's going to cause the kind of scenario I described earlier where you know no one's credit card is working and no one can find out why. And we really need these models to help guide governance and technical practice to this kind of what I see as a shared goal for a stable infrastructure. So those are the two things. On one hand, we have this internet atlas, very measurement oriented. And on the other hand, we have this more kind of theory question about what makes the internet stable. And they work together, but, but those are the two frontiers. Nick, those questions keep me up too. So if you get texts in the middle of the night, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'll be like, hey, are you thinking about this too? Really freaking yeah, me I'm- out. I'll probably uh, text you back too soon to be like, right. yeah, there are a couple of us out there. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. This has been a fascinating conversation and I look forward to following your work. Thank you, Shane. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.